Looking to learn ways to increase your income, save on taxes, or become a more successful real estate investor? Feel like you're lacking the knowledge and skills to make it big? That's about to change right here, right now. Welcome to RobNet's Real Estate Rundown. I'm your host, Shannon RobNet, and this is where you gear up with the most valuable and actionable advice from the industry's top minds. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, this podcast is designed to help you build your skills, boost your knowledge, and turn you into a confident real estate investor. Let's get into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Estate Rundown. You know, one of the reasons why I like doing this podcast is because I get to educate not only you guys, but myself as well. And one of the things that I'm looking forward to in today's conversation is some free legal advice. My guest is Clint Coons out of the Tacoma, Washington area, just up the road from me, who's actually an attorney that has built a firm that has over 500 both attorneys and CPAs in it. And he's really been uh, successful at that. And then he's branched out into the real estate world. So guys, help me welcome uh, Clint Coons to the show. Clint, how are you, man? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. How's the weather in Tacoma? Overcast. Ah, sure. well, that's yeah. 300 days a year, right? Yep. Yeah, it is. But so, hey, I'm not complaining. Yeah. So, Clint, you started out as an attorney and you've built a very successful firm. Talk with us about that a little bit and then how you made your journey into real estate. Well, I was thrown into real estate when I was three years old because I think my dad only wanted to have an indentured servant to work on his properties. I can agree with that. Yeah. I mean, kids are great. Free labor. And, yep. and so, you know, you, you see the successes your parents have, or I saw it in real estate and I realized, hey, I want to emulate this one day because my dad would always remind me when I was out there working on the properties and not getting paid that that income was going to send me to college, okay, pay for my college <laughs> education. And they always uh, got to hold it over your head, don't they? Oh, they do. And then he would remind me, you know, you ate, you know, your mom made your breakfast this morning, she's going to make you lunch and dinner and you got a place to sleep. So what do you think pays for that? <laughs> I think we might have the same father. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, you know, that just rolls downhill. Cause I told my kids the same thing when I was exactly. raising them. Yeah, exactly. But you know, I, I saw the benefit of it. And then when I went to law school, I realized that a lot of real estate investors, they just don't have the, the right advice from their local attorneys because my father would work with his father who was an attorney. And so my grandfather never once sat down with my dad and said, you know, you should look at structuring your, your affairs a little differently. So if you're involved in a lawsuit, because you got these two kids running around there doing stupid stuff that you're not going to lose all of these investments. So my dad would just, you know, if he got sued, he would settle and, and try to make the case go away for as, the least amount as possible. So when I graduated law school, I went from being the indentured servant to permanent retainer for life. <laughs> still holding it over your head. Oh, he still has that fork in me. And, and I realized, hey, th th there's a niche here. And so I started practicing and, and slowly started building up the firm. I actually was working in my house because my son was born and I just graduated law school. So I started it right there. And before I knew it, I had about, I don't know, 200 employees after about 15 years. And then we built it up. My That's a big house. Yeah, geez, right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of cooking for my wife. Yeah. You know, along that way in working with investors, I knew this is something I wanted to get into as well. So I was so focused on the business. And finally, when I was able to catch a breather, I looked to start investing. But you see, I'd made a mistake in my journey. And a lot of people tend to make the same mistake that I did 
that want to get into real estate investing that may be a small business owner is that we tend to focus on the wrong things many times, is that we don't see the larger picture when it comes to real estate investing. And, and you look at what's immediate and what's typically immediate for individuals is tax. You don't want to pay any more taxes. I mean, that's the beauty of real estate. It's a tax shelter. But I wasn't investing in real estate at the time. So I was using tax strategies to reduce my income down to zero. I thought I was the smartest guy out there. I would teach events and I would bring people in and I'd have 200 people. I said, how many people want to pay zero in taxes? And everybody would raise their hand. I'd say, well, great, let's talk about some strategies. But the problem that I found is when I decided to make that transition to start putting my cash into real estate, I'd box myself into this hole where I couldn't get financing. Because you'd go to a lender and they'd say, let me see a copy of your 1040. You're like, you don't want to see that. No, yeah. we, we need to see that. You're like, yeah. oh, shoot. Yeah, I know right. what it says, but I really do make money. And they would look right. at that and they would probably think I'm either a drug dealer, into prostitution, doing something illegal because nothing's showing up what they would expect. And so it took me out of the game. So once I figured that out, it really helped me with communicating to my clients that when it comes to asset protection and tax planning and investing, you have to look at three different things. You look at the asset protection side for sure. Use real estate to reduce your taxes but also set up your structures in a way that's going to make you look better to lenders. Right. And if you can do that, you're going to accelerate your growth of your investing. And so once I figured that out, I mean, things really took off for me. Well, you know, the reality is we've all been sold the idea of an IRA, which is essentially the same thing as putting the money to work for yourself through tax savings, right? I right. mean, the, the whole premise behind the IRA is put it in pre-tax, let it grow. And then when it comes out, we'll, we'll take our piece. Why have to be boxed into an IRA and defer your income and all those kinds of things when, when proper planning, and this is the thing that I see a lot, Clint, and you obviously see it more often than I do, but I see people that think about the deal first and really the deal should be last. People should be thinking about, okay, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? And a lot of people like you got involved with real estate to solve a tax problem. Very few people got involved with real estate like I did, where it was my primary source of income. And then out of that, I structured things that created tax benefits. But I often see people that come to their accountant at the end of the year or in April and say, hey, save me from the tax problem because they didn't consider the structure they didn't see how they could do it. And early on in my career, I had a lot of conversations with my accountant that said, but can't we avoid the taxes because I heard about this and this and this. And the accountant would say, what you probably say a lot, yes, if you would have structured it differently, of course you could. And so I learned early on through mistakes, and it's one of the things that I like to say a lot to people is every dollar I've ever made came from a mistake right? I've got tax situations that I was not able to take advantage of because I didn't structure it properly. Now, the first thing I do is I find something that I'm interested in investing with and I call up my CPA and I call up my legal structure guys and I go get them on a conference call. What do we want to do here to create the tax benefit that I'm trying to get? That way, going in, you're set up right so that when you're going out, it's not a nightmare. Most of your clients come to you not understanding that portion What's really the first step you do with your clients to kind of get their mindset changed around that you need to be the first call after the realtor shows you something? What I often tell people, I said, I start with this question. What's your exit strategy? What do you intend to do with this property? 
Because once I determine we know what that is, then we can work back into the overall plan. A lot of people, you know, if they go to their CPA and they say, I'm gonna buy a piece of real estate, they'll say, well, throw it in a limited liability company and we can set it up so it doesn't have to follow a tax return or, you know, this or that. And that may work. And that's why I talk about a three-legged stool. Yeah, you're gonna get the asset protection there, but it's really not addressing what your goals are. So you need to know what your goals are going into the deal and then plan the structure around that to help you accomplish that. And, you know, as you know, it just depends. Is it commercial multifamily? Is it single family? How is it legacy investment? Is it something you're going to rehab, stabilize, and then flip in two to five years? All that means a different type of planning. And then you layer on top of that, where does the client live, right? You live in a high-tech <laughs> state. So then we got to look at that. Where is the investment taking place? Because different states have different rules. Is So, you, you know, you don't want to get hit with transfer taxes or, or excise taxes. Right. So it's not it's not that one size fits all approach that a lot of people tend to promote plans for real estate investors that you see on the internet. It, it yeah. needs to be a little more thought process put in. Well, and you know, back to what you said in the beginning of that was it's what we're all taught in real estate. You make your money on the purchase. You make your money going in, mm -hmm. but you have to. In a lot of cases, you make your money going in by how you set it up to exit. And a lot of people don't consider that. They go in and they buy the property and they go, wow, I bought the property and I created the single person LLC or I did whatever I needed to do. I've got the asset protection. I got everything I need. But they didn't think of how they're going to get out of it or whether that's legacy or did you want to transfer that to other owners or how all the different things that over my 27 year career, I've had the opportunity to do some of them right, some of them wrong. But you find that statement of you make your money on the buy, you make your money going in is also very fitting for the line of work that you're in because that structure is what's going to dictate how this whole thing works. You're sitting there, the smartest guy in the room, you're teaching people how to box themselves in. You figure this out, you get involved in real estate. What does your real estate portfolio look like now? And what's your thought process about why you're doing that particular investing? My portfolio is primarily single family homes. I do a fair amount of flipping of property and I've got some multifamily, a few commercial and some syndication interests I hold in self-storage. The way I buy is I work with either attorneys or property managers that are aware of landlords who are looking to retire in the market in which I'm investing in. So I'm doing a lot in Winston-Salem right now, been there for a while. And then we just buy packages of deals mm -hmm. as they come up, which, you know, it's changed uh, for sure right now because a lot of people want retail, you know, right. they, they, 3.7 million for 27 homes. And you like, where did you come up with that number? A Zillow. It's like, well, yeah. then go sell them on Zillow because I'm not giving you that with a 30 day close and minimal due diligence cash offer. It, it hasn't sunk in yet that that's not realistic for them, but it's the market we're in, where I'm investing anyways. So the deals are a little slower to come by than they were, say, two years ago when we were doing them. Well, we and one of the them. things that you talked about is the market we're in. You know, the market that we've been in for the last well, not the last 12 months, but the three years prior to that wasn't the real estate market. It, it isn't a real real estate market, right? It was one that was driven by a lot of demand. It was accelerated by low interest rates. All of these things work to increase pricing. And now that all of that is changing back to what I would consider normal, so are pricing. So is due diligence timeline. It, it wasn't 12 months ago. Everybody was going a million dollar non-refundable earnest money day one. Everybody but me and probably mm -hmm. you, you know, with your legal background, you probably knew the consequences that could arise from that. But, you know, I just couldn't in good conscience engage in that kind of stuff. 
with, you know, investors capital or even my capital, because that just doesn't make sense. Now that we're seeing that go back to more of a normal pace and we're seeing more of a, a normal thing come along, it's really giving us more time, which for the structure side of things, what does it really take to come to you and say, hey, you know, I'm going to buy this 50 unit apartment complex and I'm going to hold on to it for three years. I'm going to raise the rents and then I'm going to exit. I'd like to do a 1031 or some other tax saving measure and go into another real estate asset. What does something like this even take to get paperwork done and moving forward in the right direction from day one? Okay. So you already told me what your exit strategy is, but then the next question is going to be, are you the only investor or do you have a partner that you're going into this deal with? And so then I would analyze it from that standpoint and make sure that there's an alignment there. If you did have a partner as far as the exit, because when you bring up 1031, that's a problem. If I want to do a 1031 and you don't, you want to take your cash because you want to buy an investment property or vacation property, then we're going to have either structure it as a tick going into the deal with two LLCs, or we're going to have to do a drop and swap in the future, which can complicate that sale. Right. So if I want to make sure I'm going to position myself so in three years I can sell that property, that's I kind of have to know who's going on there or who's involved. On top of that, you've got the financing. So who's going to, whose credit are we running? Who, who has the experience that's going to get the funding? So a lot of times what we'll do with our limited liability companies is we'll put in springing interest. So springing member interest. So if you and I were going into deal, you obviously have a ton more experience than me. You would be the one putting up your experience to get the loan. I'm still a partner and I'm putting in cash, but I'm not going to go on that LLC initially because I don't want them to run DD on me. I just want it to be focused on you so we can get through it, get that favorable interest rate. And then after we close, then I come into the deal as that springing member that's built into the operating agreement. What it comes down to is that generally speaking is it's going to be a limited liability company that you're going to be creating. And then depending on the size of the deal, that's going to drive where we set it up. If you're doing a large development deal, it's probably going to start in Delaware, just because I found it many times it's easier to get financing with that type of LLC, even though it's going to be registered in the state where the property is located. So if it's a smaller deal, we'll go with the state specific one. Like I said, it's just a lot of questions that go into it. We just want to make sure that, you know, there aren't going to be any hiccups along the way. And the things that I'm talking about are just a lot of times in the mistakes that I made early on in my career with my business partner, when we were putting things together to do larger deals that we realized, oh, wow, we could have done this a different way. And it would have worked out a lot quicker, smoother. One of the things you mentioned was, you know, my experience versus your experience. Let's just be clear. My experience is getting into trouble. Your experience is getting them out of trouble, right? So, so <laughs> I, th I think you've got as much experience as I am of getting us out of trouble than, than I have of getting them into trouble. So I get into trouble. I just can't get hurt. You get in trouble. You can get <laughs> right. hurt. <laughs> right. So when you're looking at that kind of thing, is that a 30 day process or is that a 60 day? I mean, what does this kind of thing take if we're just looking at the timeline? So analyzing the deal like that, you know, you can get a good sense for it when you look at a piece of property, whether or not it's going to work out, right? If I'm working with a client and I, you know, within 30 minutes, I can pretty much put together a basic framework of, of what we need to do. And then to take that to completion, 15 to 30 days, 30 days is probably, you know, depending on the complexity is what you would want to be looking at to, to get it set up. And a lot of times I tell people this opportunities, you know, when they come along, you got to be ready to take action. And, and my philosophy has always been, hey, if I know I'm investing in a certain area, like I used to do a lot in the Las Vegas market right after the crash, I would create 10 limited liability companies. 
because I knew how all these deals were all going to be structured the same. And they would just sit on my shelf and that next deal that came along, boom, that offer is going in in the name of that LLC. And so I'd already thought this through and, and planned for it. And rather than, you know, be more reactive to the situation. And so I tell people, hey, if, you, if you're investing, you're serious, you should set something up now in anticipation of that deal coming. And see, because I'm just a dumb contractor, I could never do that, set the LLCs up because every LLC I have is the address of the property. <laughs> I mean, There's I have- nothing wrong with that. I have, I have 2198 Franklin LLC, right? Where's that property located? 2198 Franklin, right? But, you know, I, I understand what you're saying. And what I, what I really appreciate you answering is that this doesn't really take a ton of additional time. It's not like this is a six-month process to get these legal documents drawn up, to get the entities figured out, to get all this stuff sorted out. It's really something that you can do during your due diligence. And so you're coming alongside and you're saying, hey, Clint, the, the realtor just showed me this property. This is what I want to do with it. This is how I think it's going to go. And you could say, okay, great. Based on that, we can get these things set up so that you're ready to go. Then if at the last minute you decide not to purchase that property, you already have this set up that you can use next time. And I think that that's something that a lot of people miss is that just like you would do due diligence on a property, having a conversation with an asset protection and a tax attorney and CPA outfit like yours is super beneficial because I guarantee people that it will open your eyes to options and opportunities that you've never heard of. And I'm going to admit something right now. I've never heard of or done a springing LLC. And so now I have another thing that I've learned because this is excellent because you do, you have those people that they're not going to be on the loan, but you know, maybe they're one or two partners. It's not a full-blown syndication. It's not all these other things. This is just a simple way to actuate something like that, that allows them to be in ownership from the beginning, but not necessarily be in the underwriting or any of those kinds of things. And so when you take the time and continue to increase your education on subjects that you're that you're involving yourself in, you're always going to find a better way to do it. I think as an attorney, you guys are constantly doing continuing ed. I know as CPAs, they're constantly doing continuing ed. There's just a lot of things that happen there where you're continuing to increase your knowledge. And what I've always found is that I can't be an expert in everything, but I can take the philosophy of Henry Ford and say, I know someone that knows that, right? And I can plug them into something like that. With what you've done, you've also mentioned in your firm, you've got a lot of CPAs and dealing with the investment clientele that you tend to target and work with. A lot of people on this podcast know a guy by the name of Tom Wilwright. He's probably the most prolific author on the subject of tax. Tell me a little bit about how your firm is similar and or different than what everybody knows Tom Wilwright to be as far as how to get your tax bill to zero with tax benefits and good accounting and those kinds of things and how that works with your asset protection legal structure that gives you another benefit that may not be something that that is talked about in Tom's books. I know that Tom doesn't talk about asset protection to, to any large degree. He's a great speaker. And as you stated, he, he writes a ton on taxes and I've met him before. I guess the, the difference between our approaches would be that although taxes are sexy, and every, as I said earlier, everybody wants to reduce your taxes, that has to be targeted, meaning knowing what you want to do is so important before you go into your tax planning, because you can't let that be the driver of everything. I mean, I understand that we don't want to pay any more than we have to in taxes, but if it's going to hurt a deal, and I know the way I'm investing and what my underwriters are looking for in order to put the deal together, then you have to understand that can't be the sole motivation. 
Or for example, I've sold a business before to private equity. And I tell you what, going through that experience is worse than going to the doctor and uh, you know what the guys have to go through once a year. And the thing about that, it taught me so much about taxes in that when you take expenses and, and things that you're thinking work great for you now, but if you're building a business and, and one day you intend to sell, or maybe it's in the back of your mind, you have to also be recognizing that what you do above the line can impact that multiple you're going to get when you sell. Yeah. And a lot of people that just talk in terms of taxes, it sounds great, but there's more that you want to look at. Because why would you want to leave $5 million on the table because you got $500,000 in tax deductions this year by all right. these various deductions you could take? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, a lot of people are short-sighted, you know, and again, back to playing the long game. I'm going to maybe take the guess that when you looked at selling this business, it wasn't always planned out that you were going to sell this business. Nope. You got somebody come along knocked on the door, said, hey, Clint, we've got an offer for you. You said, well, shoot, that sounds pretty good. Let's look at this. Where that education, you now can use my phrase that you have a dollar for every mistake you made because it sounds like you learned some things on what you could have done different on the tax side that would have improved that exit. About $12 million, yeah. <laughs> you got a master's degree, a PhD, an associate. Let's see, by this time, you're a fellow, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, it was very sobering because after the fact, they came in and they said, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to move this down below the line and increases the EBITDA here. You're like, oh, yeah. man, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. could have been in such a different position. But, you know, you learn from that and taking that experience then and moving it forwards. It's just another thing that uh, an arrow in your quiver when you're working with people that you convey to them that it's a larger picture. You just can't look at it isolated, right? You have to know, as we've been talking about, everything that you potentially want to do in life and then plan for that. And you know, the reality is it's all about planning and protection and exits. And I think that, especially in the environment that's happened over the 19, 20, and 21, people were playing Monopoly, but it's like they were day trading real estate. And when you really step back and you say, you know what, regardless of the stage of my game that I'm in now, whether you're doing fix and flips, whether you're doing wholesaling, whether you're doing the burr strategy, or maybe getting into large multifamily that you want to move around in 12 to 18 months, you really need to look at that long game and look at it and go, okay, at some point I'm going to start holding this stuff. At some point I'm going to start future planning for this. I need to look at this a little bit different than what I'm doing today and what I see as my future in this and really get ahead of that curve instead of be the person that like yourself and like I've done several times, wind up with the opportunity and be ill-prepared to maximize it. Correct. And so to that point, when you, you know, you're asking what makes us somewhat maybe unique or, or different than Tom is that our approach is more about that entire planning process. So we take someone in, we work on their asset protection, business planning side that is paying attention to the taxes, also looking as I've been talking about the business and then bringing on the fact that when you're talking about the long game, the long game goes beyond just your life. It's, you know, where's that, what's going to happen? How's that going to pass on to those future generations? So putting together that estate plan that recognizes, hey, maybe you're going to have a taxable estate and what are we going to do to minimize that? When that passes on to that next generation, what are you hoping for? Do you want it to continue to produce income? If so, do you want to make that a legacy? And then is there a nonprofit layer that you want to bring into it because you want to take your successes and help out other people who are less fortunate? And so maybe that's another 
uh, angle that we're looking at. And so our planning is all about working with someone and approaching it from many different angles. And it really sounds like, and especially we've all worked with the guy that has it in theory. And you probably have worked with other attorneys that understand the tax law, that understand asset protection. What has this done for you actually being the investor, being the reciprocant of the of your own advice, being the, the one that has to be there at the end when the sale is eminent and it's pending and things didn't go exactly as planned or they did because of the planning. What kind of element do you think that, or advantage do you think that that gives people that are working with a firm like yours because you are actually practicing real estate as well as law? I run into this every single time. Attorneys and CPAs, they don't understand the larger picture. They're always looking for ways to, I wouldn't say kill a deal, but they get in way of the deal because they'll point out things that aren't really issues. Whoa, they'll say, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. And it's like, yeah, we can butt this thing to death if we want to. But at the end of the day, I'm going through with this transaction. All I need you to do is help me get to that point and not quit all this nonsense of issues you keep bringing up that are too obscure to impact where I'm going. And that's where I've been most frustrated whenever I've had to utilize outside counsel, that they're always finding a way to justify their fees. And their fees seem to be driven on just issue spotting and saying, oh, you got to do all the cross all these I, or T's and dot all these I's. I'm like, no, you don't. It doesn't all need to be done. I mean, it's just, you know, the way it is. You're in construction. You know, you got to build up to code, but you don't have to, you, you go out there, there's ways to get things done a lot quicker. Right. As long as it's built to code and it's done right, it's fine. Well, and, and we do a lot of cost analysis on our side, right? I mean, you could build this thing to be, you know, completely green and you can build this thing to be really, really energy efficient, but is anybody going to pay for that, right? Are they really going to be able to justify the rents versus the cost savings? And I hear you saying kind of the same thing. You've got to get the deal done. The goal is to get the deal done. The goal is to provide the protection, but really understanding the whole picture. And I hear this all the time, especially when people are talking about CPAs and tax savings and things like that. They say, why didn't my, why didn't my CPA tell me that? Then I turn it on them and I say, did you specifically ask them that? And did you ask them that in the tax year that you're questioning it in? Right? Because a lot of people will ask their accountant in March, the cake's already baked. All we're doing is frosting it at this point. And we're trying yep. to figure out how to get you out of a mess that you did without talking to your CPA. You know, Clint, the reality is if people are involved with qualified attorney groups, qualified CPA outfits that specialize in the type of business that they're doing, I mean, you wouldn't go to a criminal justice guy that's there working with everybody and their dog on DUIs or the ambulance chasers or all the other great terms we've got for attorneys because we love you all so much. But you wouldn't go to them and ask them to craft a document about asset protection, but yet you still see a lot of people that run for that one size fits most rocket lawyer type of a situation where, no, no, I'm protected, but they're really not. And they don't have a plan. It, it always boggles my mind that people go, well, I, I can do this on my own. Well, really, why would you? Because when you really look at it, the protection, you don't need it until somebody that's been schooled and educated to poke holes in things starts poking holes. And the other side of that is, wouldn't you want somebody that went to school to be educated to poke holes in things to write the document so there's not a lot of holes to poke? What is your answer to people that go, well, I, I think I can do this on my own? I mean, it works until it doesn't. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the likelihood of being sued in real estate is pretty darn small. I've been sued just a handful of times. And, and for an attorney, that's actually saying something. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, I've been involved in a number of lawsuits, but not, not very many of my own. 
what I'm saying is that until it's tested, you don't know what you have. Right. And that's when it becomes apparent whether or not there was a mistake made in, in the formation or the type of structure you set up, how it was run. And that's where you're going to get in trouble. I remember I was, I went out to this investor group. It was interesting. I, I decided to invited me. This a client said, Hey, can you come up and speak to my investor group? I heard you're down in LA and they were just North of that. And I said, okay, that means I got to spend the night. So I said, I'll spend the night. And I called my wife and she said, where are you going? She, I said, well, there's group. They want me to come up there. She goes, Oh yeah. What's where are you meeting? And this is where it became kind of a problem. I said, well, it's called the gentleman's club. She goes, you ain't staying there or your stuff's going to be out on the lawn. And I, <laughs> when the guy told me that, I was like, dad, there better not be a brass pole in this place or, or my marriage is over. I'm not showing. Well, and, and then it'd be really hard to get anybody's attention anyway. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> Cause I'll sit there with $1 bills. Right. So anyways, I go up there, there's like 20 guys and I, I talked to them for 40 minutes. They're all high end real estate investors, business owners. They had to have a net worth of at least 5 million to be part of this club. And I asked them when I got done, how many wanted one of my business cards? Not one person took a card. And I thought that was strange, but it happened. But six months later, I get a phone call. And it, it, the message said, hey, Clint, it's Tim. I met you at the Gentleman's Club and I need you to call me ASAP. And when somebody calls an attorney and they say, I need you to call me ASAP, what does that mean typically? It means yeah. I, I've gotten into some trouble and I need you to get me out of it. That's exactly right. I call him up and sure enough, yeah, his business was being sued and all of his assets were in his business. And he's got a bunch of cash inside of there, property inside of there, equipment inside of there. And it's one of those things when I'm talking to him, he thought he was protected because the CPA told him to set it up this way because the CPA was looking at it purely from a tax standpoint. And now he has an attorney that's telling him to settle the case and pay a million dollars for these, because it's in California, for these client or ex-employees. And I couldn't help. I said, listen, I can't help you, Tim. That horse has left the barn. There's nothing I can do for you now. You got to settle this thing, get a new attorney because your attorney sucks if they told you to pay a million dollars and settle this case. And he did. And he settled it for, believe it or not, $10,000 between just by switching attorneys. That's It went from a million down to 10. And then we got him structured and we started working with him and, and we started doing some planning. And it was one of those things that I met with him originally. He thought he was protected because the CPA said, hey, we got this entity. You're good. You know, taking all the right measures, but he really hadn't. And it wasn't until he was in that position where he realized, hey, you know, $750,000, they're talking about garnishing my account. They're talking about going after my equipment that I use to generate my income. Those are things that are a wake-up call. If you're doing the right type of planning, I can't stop you from getting involved in a lawsuit. But what I can tell you is that if you do get yourself involved in a lawsuit, you haven't risked all of your efforts. And right. we've had plenty of clients go through it. They've been sued for up to 15 million, $20 million. And literally they walk away. And I tell people, you know, the strategy should be this, make the other side, take your policy limits. That's why you have the insurance and think that there's nothing else to get. And that's how you can make this stuff go away and you can keep your portfolios and, and you can keep running your business. Because when you get sued the first time, you can talk to people who have been through this process. You know, it sucks. It, it takes your eye off the ball. And, and it's not until you're involved in your third or fourth lawsuit where you realize, oh, this isn't that bad if you got the right structure behind it. Right. Well, and you know, one of the simple structures that I use is when we have equity in a deal, regardless of the LLC, we have another LLC that's set up that has a lien in second position that takes it up past the retail value. So just with that one simple thing, an attorney that's looking at it going, hey, we're going to put the heat on Shannon. We know he's got these assets over here and they've searched under my name, or maybe they've searched under a business name and they look at the business assets and they say, wow, you've got all this stuff here. There's got to be equity in there. But then they look and they see that there's a second lien holder's position that 
now takes a $5 million building to a $6 million value or $6 million liens worth of liens against yeah. it, they quickly realize and they'll dial back down and then they're looking at your insurance limits. And it's just little things like that that can save tons of time, money and effort because they're going to take a quick look at it. And if there really is a reason to sue, they're going to bring a reasonable lawsuit that's going to be much easier to navigate than something that where you've got everything connected and, and it's all out there and, and all those kinds of things. Who taught you that equity stripping technique? And, and that's just a, a really mm -hmm. simple thing that is very effective as one of several barricades that you want to put up that doesn't make you look like you have something. Because let's just be honest. I mean, if that lady that got millions of dollars for spilling coffee in her lap pulled up to, you know, Joe's diner in a rundown 1940s built building, she wouldn't have been asking for $5 million. She'd have been asking for clean pants. Yeah. But because of who it was and because of what it represented, and then she knew what the profitability of that company was, was you know 99% of the reason she went for the money she went for. We've all spilled coffee in our lap. We just weren't smart enough to get there before they put the label yeah. on it said caution hot. So, well, Joe, I, I really appreciate you giving us the, the, the insight that number one, setting up entities and strategies is not hard. It's not difficult. And it doesn't take six months to go through this whole process to get things set up. And the other thing, the other nugget that I got out of this was that, you know, there are multiple strategies to do this with and looking at the different stages that people are at in their real estate game, what their end goals are, is how things get set up properly from the beginning. And it's much less expensive to do it now than do it mid-stride or do it after you've got problems. If people want to get a hold of you and find out more of that and get one-on-one -on -one with your staff, where can they get a hold of you? They can go to our, just our firm's website, AndersonAdvisors.com. Or you just throw my name in and type in YouTube. Tons of videos out there they can watch on, on asset protection. Well, and you yeah. know, Clint, this is the one thing that I really do appreciate about you. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because you do spend so much time and effort trying to educate people, trying to get people to understand that there is a better way to do it. Unfortunately, some people then try to operate on themselves after watching your video. But, you know, so guys, if you're looking for that, AndersonAdvisors.com or Clint Coons, YouTube in your search browser of choice, and you'll find that great and valuable information. Clint, I want to thank you for coming by the Real Estate Rundown. Guys, if you would take the time, like, subscribe to our channel. We'd love uh, hearing your input on what other topics you'd like to see, great ones like this with Clint, so that we can continue to provide the education and the resources that you guys have come to value with our channel here. I want to thank you guys for stopping by the Real Estate Rundown, and we'll see you next time right here on this channel. Thanks for listening. I hope you found tons of value in this show. It would help us a lot if you could rate and leave us a five-star review as we continue our mission to help others just like you in their real estate journey. Thank you, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Robnet's Real Estate Rundown.